Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Text that we spoke from this morning, I said I would continue on this uh, same theme tonight. Of course, is in 3 John. Turn over there with me. 3 John, verse number 2. 3 John, verse number 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Well, to prosper in all things would be prospering in all things. And, and when we use the word prosper, and when they use the word prosper in the New Testament, it had the same meaning that it has today, and that's primarily to be successful in uh, financial affairs, to be successful in material things. And so it meant the same thing then that it does today, even though people try to uh, uh, say, well, it doesn't mean that, it means other things, just spiritual things. Well, he did talk about three different kinds of prosperity here. He said, I pray that you prosper in all things that be in health and just as your soul prospers. So there's spiritual prosperity, there's physical prosperity in your body, and then there's financial or material prosperity as well. Praise the Lord. Now go with me this, uh, tonight and let's look again at the, at the verse of scripture we looked at today in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We pointed out the fact that prosperity, that is material financial prosperity is included in the redemptive work of Christ. And we found out that that's very important. Now, this passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians 8, verse number nine says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Most people read that verse and they spiritualize it and they say, well, it's just talking about spiritual things, that Jesus uh, was rich spiritually, he became poor for our sakes, that we might uh, become rich spiritually. And uh, the thing is, most people believe that this applies to him in his earthly life in the sense that though he was rich because he existed in heaven before uh, he became in flesh, and, that, and we know that Philippians says that, that he humbled himself, that he emptied himself and, uh, 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 and became a man. And so they take that to, to mean that uh, though he was rich in heaven, he became poor and he became a man so that we through his poverty might be rich. Uh, the problem with that interpretation of that verse is uh, this is clearly a substitutionary verse. We read this verse, turn over one page to, uh, to chapter five, verse number 21, and it says, for he made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So you see, that is a substitutionary verse. It talks about the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Well, in, if you go back to chapter eight, verse six, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Notice the same uh, substitutionary uh, formula is, is used in this verse. It talks about the exchange that took place, that Jesus took our poverty 
And though he was rich, he took our poverty and gave us his riches. Now, people who hold that this is talking about Jesus coming from heaven, he was rich in heaven uh, with with the Father, and then he humbled himself and became a man, that this was him becoming poor spiritually, and so that we, through his human uh, humility and the experience that he had might be made rich. The problem with that is there is no substitutionary sacrifice in his coming to the earth. The substitutionary sacrifice took place on the cross. There is no redemption as a result of Jesus coming to the earth. Now it was part of the plan of redemption, but there again, let me say it again, the substitutionary aspect of Jesus's, of the plan of redemption took place on the cross. That's where the exchange took place. That's where he took our sin and gave us his righteousness. So this is where he took our poverty and gave us his riches. It happened on the cross. So it's not in his earthly ministry or in his earthly walk that this happened, but it happened on the cross. So then the question still uh, presents itself, well, is this talking about a spiritual uh, something that happened on the cross, or is this talking about natural riches and natural uh, poverty? And most people hold that this is talking about uh, on the cross, it has to be on the cross, it couldn't be before the cross. This is something that happened on the cross, but that it is spiritual in nature. Now, we, we pointed out this morning some of the uh, uh, fundamental rules for Bible interpretation. One, you know, who's talking? We found out it was Paul. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. Well, it's the Holy Spirit through Paul speaking not only to the Corinthian church, but to this church. It's the Holy Spirit speaking through us. And then what is he talking about? Well, the only way you can find out what he's talking about is look at the context. In the context, you start off in chapter 8, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with great urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So they had received uh, an offering, the churches of Macedonia uh, had received an offering to give to the church in Jerusalem and in Judea that was suffering. And uh, so we have here, the whole chapter is about uh, someone giving to someone else to to alleviate their distress and their problem. Only in this case with the Macedonians, they were not rich and gave to the, the saints in Jerusalem who were poor. They were poor themselves. But because of the grace of God upon them, they actually in their poverty actually even gave to bless the impoverished in Jerusalem. So it's a, it's a story and, and the whole context has to do with actual financial assistance. It's actually talking about real, everyday, natural poverty and natural resources and natural riches. Can you see that? And so uh, now sometimes in language, just in storytelling and talking and literature, sometimes we'll use an illustration of something that is like something else, but it's not the same thing. And so in that case, this could be a, a, even though he's talking about uh, uh, natural 
money, natural giving, natural riches and poverty. He's talking about it all through the eighth chapter and the ninth chapter. The whole two chapters are dealing with giving to, to alleviate someone else's need. Now, even though that's talking about uh, giving in the natural, sometimes we do interject an illustration in telling a story or writing something. It happens all the time where, where we present something that's similar to that, but it's not the same thing in order to give an example. Well, that's what this verse is. He's inserting the, the story, or not the story, but he's inserting the fact that Jesus likewise gave uh, what gave up his riches that we might, who were poor, might have his riches, that though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. But then the question comes again, is that talking about spiritually or is it talking about naturally or literally? Well, some of the other rules for interpretation is first, you should always interpret the Bible literally. It simply means what it says. Don't assign a, a spiritual meaning to it. Now, we know that spiritualization sometimes is warranted, but it's only warranted when a literal translation is, or, or interpretation is not possible. Sometimes the Bible says things that you know it cannot be interpreted literally. We pointed out two examples this morning when Jesus said, if any man comes after me and does not hate his mother and father and wife and children and everybody else, he can't follow me. Well, we know that's not literally talking about, you know, hating somebody what, because the Bible teaches different than that. The Bible teaches we're supposed to love one another, especially our family, isn't that right? So, what this is, what, so we know then that we have to take that figuratively. He could not have meant it literally because it's contrary to the, to the rest of the word of God. So then what we figure or, or, or gather from that is that our love for God, this is what Jesus was teaching, our love for God has to be so much greater than love for anyone else even our family, that, that it, in comparing the two, it's like we hate our family in comparison with our love for God. It doesn't mean we literally hate our family. It just means we love God more than anything. And, and the way that plays out in life, we do see people who struggle because they, they don't want to turn loose of the things of this life and pleasing someone in this life, but we have to please God first. Amen. You have to put God over your wife. You have to get, put God over your husband. You have to put God over your, your mother and father and your, and your children and, 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 and friends. Isn't that right? You have to put God first even if it hurts. Amen. Another example we used of, of a passage that cannot be taken literally is when Jesus said, uh, uh, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Well, that couldn't be taken literally because that's cannibalism. The Bible doesn't teach cannibalism. Come on now, it doesn't. And, and like I said this morning, even if it did, I mean, there's only so many people that could eat his flesh and drink his blood. I mean, he was just one person. He only had one body, so only a, a few people could even, could even take advantage of that. No, you have to take that as a spiritual statement. And so, uh, like I said, the only uh, time spiritualization is warranted is when a literal translation is not possible. Well, is a literal translation possible in this verse? The reason why people immediately make this out to, to be a spiritual thing, in other words, they spiritualize this spiritual riches and spiritual poverty. The reason they do that is they cannot conceive of Jesus. Now, now, now notice this. 
this had to have, this had to have happened on the cross and everybody understands that. This has to have happened on the cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That means he was rich before he went to the cross. He went to the cross rich, but while on the cross he became poor. That we through his poverty might be made rich. So this presents Jesus as rich in his earthly walk. In other words, the the man Jesus, as he ministered along the seashore of Galilee and as he uh, uh, walked to the cities and preached the gospel, that he was rich, that he didn't become poor until he went to the cross. Well, the reason people cannot conceive of that is because tradition says Jesus was poor. That's the only reason to spiritualize this verse. Remember, you, 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 you don't spiritualize something unless a literal translation is not possible. And so most people say, well, that's not possible it, that Jesus was rich naturally because we all know he was poor. He was a poor man. Tradition has uh, established the idea that Jesus was born into poverty. You know, poor Jesus, born in a, in a manger, you know, didn't have anything, had to eat hay, you know. <laughs> no, as I pointed out this morning, the reason he was born in a manger was because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, if they didn't have money to buy a room, it would be a misrepresentation to say because there was no room in the inn. Because if they didn't have the money for a room, the fact that there was no room would be irrelevant. How many of you know sometimes that we have a tendency to, to sometimes give another reason for something other than the real reason for something happening? And I said, and sometimes, you know, I'll say, now, wait a minute. You know, that's not the real reason. Let's, let's be honest. Here's the real reason. Well, when, when the Bible says that, that they had to resort to a, 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 a manger, a stall, a stable for, for animals was because there was no room in the inn. Well, they must have had money for the room and there was, and, and, and that's why because they, there was no room is why they had to go to the stable. So they were looking for a room. They must have had money. You don't look for a room if you don't have money. Isn't that right? So, so, so Jesus' parents weren't poor. Now we know that uh, uh, he was born you know, in these humble surroundings but again, not for lack of money or lack of, of resources. We know then that when Jesus was just a couple of years old that the wise men came bearing gifts suited for a king. They brought gold, frankincense, myrrh, very expensive spices and, and, and things like this. The value of these things, if you're, bringing, if you're bringing a gift for a king, you don't bring a little bit of gold. A little bit of gold doesn't impress a king. These wise men were bringing gifts fitting a king. They said, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. So they brought quite a bit of resources into Mary and Joseph's life. We see in in the uh, gospels that Jesus never had lack. He uh, He never experienced a situation where he didn't have the money to do what he needed to do. His ministry was always conducted uh, 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 with every need met. 
He had very wealthy people uh, that followed him and that kept Mary and Martha and, and, and Lazarus were well-to-do people. They contributed his ministry. Susanna, who was the, the, the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's servant, and other women followed Jesus and gave to him out of their resources. So he, we would say he had some, some very wealthy supporters who gave into his ministry. We see that everywhere Jesus went, he always had, always had plenty. So this idea that Jesus was poor is a tradition, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't jive with the scriptures. We see that Jesus and his team regularly gave to the poor. They had a treasure among them. And very often uh, they would go and, and Jesus would instruct them to give to the poor. Well, you don't give to the poor if you're poor yourself not as a usual thing, and you certainly don't need a treasurer. Amen. They had, a, they had someone that kept the money, and we know who that was. He was. His name was Judas. And it says that Judas frequently stole from the money bag. Well, you would have to have a fairly substantial amount of money to be stealing from it, and nobody know it. I mean, even if you, even if you managed it yourself, if money's going in and, and then there's time to spend money and there's no money there or not sufficient money there, everybody would say, well, wait a minute. Why is it there money in the, in the kitty? Why is it there money in the, in, the, in the funds? Why don't we have the funds to do this? Well, it's because he had been stealing from the funds. Isn't that right? So that would have been obvious is that if that had been the case. No one suspected that there was a shortage of funds. So all of these things add up to show us that Jesus was not poor. He was, in fact, according to the Bible, rich. Now, we, we discussed this. And we're getting ahead of our little, ourselves a little bit. What does it mean to be rich? To mean rich, to be rich is, is, does not mean a certain amount of money. To be rich in the Bible doesn't mean that you have a certain amount. It doesn't mean that you're a millionaire or, or anything else. It's not what it means. Now, in the Old Testament, people were rich, and we would probably consider them, according to today's standards, to be very rich. Uh, 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 Job and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Sam, uh, Solomon. There are people that, and the Bible describes their riches as having, you know, silver and gold in abundance and cattle and, and, and sheep and so forth and, and uh, lands and having all, amassing all of this natural wealth. Well, that for some people, being rich, that's what it means. But the simplest version or, or definition, I should say, of being rich is having a full supply. Jesus had a full supply. Jesus didn't have several different houses. He didn't have a house in, you know, in Jerusalem and a villa in, in uh, 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 Capernaum and a condo down on the seashore you know, for the summer breaks. And, you know, he was only ministering for three and a half years. And, and then he was going to be gone. And he was very busy every day. He didn't take days off. He only had three and a half years and he was very busy. It would have been impractical for him to have houses and lands and, and chariots and, and, and all of the things that rich people in the community have. It would just not make sense. It would be more of an encumbrance than it would be a blessing. How many of you know that sometimes blessings can be an encumbrance and they're less of a blessing and, and they're actually more trouble than they're worth? Amen. Have you ever experienced that? Or, well, do you know of people that experience that? Yeah. Amen. So in Jesus' life, 
He, he didn't have, he didn't amass property and, and, and real estate and, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, houses full of clothes and gold and silver and jewelry and all that stuff. It wasn't practical for him because he came here for a mission and on a mission and that was to seek and to save that which is lost, to lay his life down as a sacrifice for sin. But yet in the fulfilling of his of his ministry, he always had enough. He, he never had to cancel a crusade for lack of money. He never failed to obey God because there wasn't enough money in the treasury. No, he always had plenty, even to the point that if, if he needed tax money, uh, supernaturally God provided it out of the mouth of a fish, amen? And so uh, Jesus was, according to the Bible definition, he was rich, he had a full supply. So uh, the only, again, the only reason to spiritualize this verse is the traditions of men. I said the only reason to spiritual, the only thing that warrants spiritualizing this is if you believe Jesus was poor in his earthly life. But if you don't, if you don't believe that, if you believe he had plenty, then you can, you can easily see that this must apply, must, must apply to a physical or natural prosperity. Though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. Thank God Jesus became poor on the cross, that he became poor naturally. They took everything from him on the cross. They took his clothes and sold his clothes. He lost everything that we, through his poverty, might be rich. We pointed out that the Old Testament is very clear that poverty is part of the curse of sin. That when mankind sinned, one of the results was he was driven from the garden and though he had been prosperous and had abundance, Adam and Eve had abundance in the Garden of Eden, but suddenly they found themselves thrust out, cast out of the garden, an angel standing at the gate with a sword moving every which way you know, to protect and guard the way to the tree of life. They found themselves on the outside of the garden and the Bible says the earth, the ground rather, was cursed and that instead of just tending the beautiful garden, uh, the Lord said, now you will earn your living by the sweat of your brow. And by instead of the land yielding up its resources, there's a curse on it, and it'll, it'll pr- produce thorns and, 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 and trouble. Have you ever noticed you have to labor to get your garden in, but you don't have to do anything for weeds? Yeah. I mean, that's why is that? There's a curse on the ground. And that's why you don't have to do anything and weeds will just grow. But if you want something good, you have to work. Isn't that right? That's a part of the curse that's on the ground. So we see that lack, that poverty and so forth is part of the judgment and part of the penalty of sin. We read from Isaiah, of course, that, uh, that Jesus bore our sicknesses and our sin on the cross and also the punishment necessary to obtain well-being, including prosperity, for us was upon him. I like this verse over in, uh, in uh, uh, Isaiah 53 from the uh, Young's translation. Turn over there in your Bible and look at it. Isaiah 53, verse number six. It says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The, uh, lec- the Hebrew lexicon says this word iniquity means iniquity. It also means the guilt of iniquity. And it also means the 
consequences of and punishment for iniquity. So not only was our sin laid on Jesus, but the consequences of sin was laid on him. And the consequences of sin, of course, includes guilt and it includes sorrow and it includes spiritual death and separation from God. It includes sickness and it includes poverty and all that was placed on Jesus. Uh, the the uh, Young's literal translation in the first part of verse number seven reads like this. He says, uh, it hath been exacted and he hath answered. It hath been exacted and he hath answered. And so that word exact means to demand vigorously the full payment of, to require as a matter of strict justice without making any concessions whatsoever. So it says, all we like sheep have wandered, each to his own way we have turned. And Jehovah, the Lord, has caused to fall on him the punishment of us all. It was demanded a full amount of the punishment of us all was demanded vigorously. And it was required as a matter of strict justice without making any concession whatsoever. Let me say that again. The punishment of us all, the full amount of that was vigorously demanded of Jesus. And it was required of him as a matter of strict justice without making any concessions whatsoever. That simply means that whatever the curse was on the cross, the full and rigorous payment of that punishment was demanded of the Lord Jesus on the cross without making any concessions whatsoever. That means, that means nothing was left concerning the curse that Jesus did not bear. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse, having become a curse for us, for cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Praise God. Hallelujah. So we said that this is important because God created man to exercise dominion. That's why God created man. He created, he placed the earth here for, and, and gave it to man, everything in it, and told man to exercise dominion. That is still the plan of God for this planet. Now we know that sin came in and, 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 and messed up the plan, but we know that Jesus came and he exemplified the dominion of a man of God in the earth. He came not only as the son of God, but as the son of man. And he, and he, uh, he embodied the dominion of man. He was the archetype, if you want to say that, of the dominion of man. He modeled dominion for us. He was, he was the perfect new creation man. Although we're, we're new creations, he was the original creation of God. So he modeled dominion in this earth. For us, amen. Uh, I said this this morning and I close with this. We can no more leave prosperity on the table than we can leave any other provision of the cross. We wouldn't think of leaving anything that Jesus provided for us on the cross. We would not think, we cannot think 
of leaving anything un, uh, 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 accepted. We cannot leave anything of what God has provided. We have to take it all. It would be a dishonor to God. Every now and then you hear people say, like the other day, uh, a young man died. Because he, I just heard this, I think, yesterday or Friday. A man went swimming. And he had some, some other children with him. And if I'm reading this correct, I just kind of scanned over it. They were in, a, in, a, in some water. And, and it was a flowing river or stream. And the, and the twins were caught up in it and were being swept away. And he jumped in to save the twins. And it took him so much effort to take them to safety that he ended up drowning. And, uh, you know, the, the, the father of the man that drowned, he said, well, you know, I only have one consolation. And that is that even though he gave his life, he did not give it in vain. He gave his life for somebody else. Well, you know, we say that people, they didn't die in vain. Well, they, the only reason they don't, they, they die in vain if people don't take advantage of what they died for. Isn't that right? And so we don't want any aspect of what Jesus did on the cross to be in vain. So let's move to some, some thoughts about prosperity tonight. Uh, first of all, prosperity is progressive. You have to understand prosperity is, is progressive. Turn to Genesis 26. We'll see a perfect verse for this. And this is in the, in the life of Isaac, Abraham's first you know, child, or, but not his firstborn. I, I don't know if it was firstborn or not, but anyway, his son. And it says in verse number 13, I uh, just went blank. What was his first son? Uh, no, Ishmael. Ishmael was his first son. So Isaac was, was his second son. So here it says in verse 13, Talking about Isaac, the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he was very prosperous. That is the progression of prosperity. He began to prosper, but he not only began to prosper, he continued prospering. And he, he just didn't continue prospering for no reason or, or for no end. He, he continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Godly prosperity is progressive. You have to begin to prosper. Now, how do you begin to prosper? I said, I think last week, you can begin to prosper if you don't have uh, uh, hardly anything. You can begin to prosper. The first thing you do to begin your prosperity, the very first thing, it starts with agreeing with God's word that it's his will for you to prosper. For a lot of people, they've, they've never heard that. And so that's a big shock to them. They don't, they don't really, or, or maybe they've heard it and they reject it because of a sense of false humility. Well, I'm not interested in those things. You know, I'm just interested. I don't want anything in this life. Well, that's, that's usually a false humility because visit them on, on payday and just say, well, since you don't want anything, just give me your paycheck. Well, no, now you got a little bit of an argument. Uh, so that's a false humility most of the time. But, but there's the sense, well, it's just not, it's, it's just improper, you know, to, to have a desire for things. Well, uh, that's not necessarily true. Now, we know that the love of money is the root of all evil. 
But we talked about this extensively when I taught for several weeks about the dangers of prosperity, the dangers of riches. You remember that series? Just, just completed it not long ago. There are many dangers associated with being rich. And, and the chief danger is having a love for money and having uh, money control your life and trusting in it. And so there are some dangers associated with it, but it depends upon why you want money. Why do you want riches? Do you want riches just to consume it upon yourself or do you want riches in order to be a blessing to somebody else? If you want riches for the right reason, it's right to, right, to want riches if you want them for the right reason. And so it starts, prosperity starts with agreeing with God's word on the subject and then acting on it. Believing God wants you to prosper and then giving. That's how you act on it. Doug mentioned tithing tonight. We'll, we'll talk about that more later. But the Bible teaches tithes and offerings. The Bible teaches giving to the poor. The Bible teaches being generous in your giving. Well, that's how you act on what you believe. Once you come to the place where your eyes are open and you realize that God wants to prosper me, then the next step is to act on that and actually give something. Now, you might not have a whole lot to give. But as soon as you give in faith because you know the word of God, at that moment, you begin to prosper. At that moment, God sees you as prosperous. Even though you don't have anything yet. Maybe it's the first offering you've ever given and you just have $10. You say, I just, this is all I have, but I believe God wants me to prosper and I, I wanna give so that I can be a blessing. And you give that $10. When you give it, now you're $10 you have $10 less than you had before. That, 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 that is a, a step down on your financial ledger. Isn't that right? Now your net worth is $10 less than it was before. God sees your net worth entirely different. You know, if you had a piece of property, if you had 10 acres and it would just lie, it just lay fallow for years, it just nothing gone, just, just worthless land. You know, it would have a certain price. It would be worth so much and you could sell it for so much money. But if you had those, those acres planted in pine trees, even though you hadn't, you planted it, you haven't reaped anything, you try to sell that land now. It's worth a whole lot more with those pine trees on it than it was without the pine trees. Isn't that right? Why? Because the, the value of the land is in what's been sown into it. The value of the land is not what it is without what was sown. It's what the value is after it's sown because they know there's a harvest coming. Somebody's gonna get to harvest those pine trees, sell those pine trees and make money off of it. So that raises the value. So as soon as you give your first offering to God, though, though on your ledger, you're $10 poorer in God's sight, you're exponentially richer. Because God sees the harvest that's coming and you see it if you're in faith, you see the harvest that's coming. You give that $10 and you don't think, well, now I'm poor. And when you're in faith, you give that $10, you think, oh, now I'm richer. Now I'm rich, I just gave $10, I'm richer. So you don't have the manifestation of it, but you have the confidence of it because you did it in faith, acting on the word of God because you know what the Bible says. So the moment you understand that God wants to prosper you and you act on that by giving, that's when you begin to prosper. 
from that point on, you're prospering. Amen. Now, reaping is proportional to sowing. I said reaping is proportional to sowing. Sow a little, give a little, reap a little. Sow a lot, reap a lot. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 9 says? For he who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. So you have to understand that where prosperity is concerned, it's progressive and it starts whenever you have revelation of the word and you act on it, then you begin to prosper. But, but prospering and reaping is proportional to the sowing. Now, listen, one of the, one of the ideas of the... Uh, uh, grace, the, the modern day grace error. I don't want to say the extreme grace teaching. I've said that before, but I don't like it. The reason I don't like it is grace is extreme. I mean, the grace of God's extreme. Amen. For, for a, 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 a good man, the Bible says not many people would die even for a good man, but God commanded his love for us that even while we were wretched, and sinners and of no value, Christ died for us. That's extreme grace. So grace, Bible grace is extreme. But I'm talking about the erroneous, the, the doctrine of grace that's in error today. One of the ideas is that uh, anything Christ has purchased for us, there is nothing we can do to gain that blessing from God. And so the way this, this, this shakes out in the application of it is in these churches that have taken this message, this, this, this message of, of, of grace that's erroneous, this error, they'll say, well, you know, it doesn't matter what you give. Just give anything, you know. And, and, the, and the giving in that, in those kinds of congregations, the giving always goes down because they're taught that, listen, Prosperity is in the redemptive work of Christ. You have a right to prosperity. By covenant, you have a right to prosperity. Now, that's what they say. That is true. I've spent the 20 minutes tonight reestablishing the fact that we have a right to prosperity. It's in the redemptive work of Christ. Jesus took our poverty that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. Poverty is something that belongs to us. What did I say, poverty? Prosperity, you know what I meant. I'm just testing you. Prosperity, prosperity belongs to us. But it's still in proportion to our giving. We'll show you this in the scriptures. Go with me to uh, Luke 38, 638. Luke 638. We quote this very scripture very often. Luke 638, give and it will be given to you. Now notice, notice how it comes back. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your bosom. That's the covenant blessing. That's the result of the fact that God took our poverty in order that we could take his prosperity, his riches. That's the covenant power right there. Given it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. But notice the rest of the verse. 
For with the same measure that you use, that is in your sowing, it will be measured back to you. So even though in the grace of God, God has declared prosperity for us and it is ours and the, and the effect of that blessing is that it comes back good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. But the other, other side of it, it's still proportional to our, to our sowing. If I took a cup of corn kernels, dried corn kernels, seed, and let's say there's about a dozen of them, and I plant them in a field, I'm going to get a harvest. And it's going to come back to me, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. I, have a, I plant a, a, a dozen kernels of corn, I'm going to have a dozen stalks of corn. How many ears? Farmers out here, how many ears of corn would I expect on, on one stalk? Huh? Through two to three, is that all? Okay, let's say three. Let's just say three. I think there might be more, but let's just say three. How many kernels of corn are on each? 500? So that's, that's 1,500 kernels of corn to one, every one that was placed in the ground. That's good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, isn't it? That's the covenant because we're redeemed from the curse of, of poverty and we've been given the blessing of Abraham. That blessing is, and we've, when we have this not because of anything we've done, we have this because of our covenant, right? The blood of Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross promises us that when we sow into the kingdom of God, return is coming and it's coming. Good measure, pressed down, shaking the ground running, and running up. But it's still proportionate to how much you sow for with the same measure that you use, it'll be measured back to you. If I buy a, a, a thousand pound bag of corn, I don't know how many acres it would take to sow a thousand pounds of corn. But it would take, I'm guessing, quite a few acres. Now it's gonna come back, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running up. Why? Because I'm in covenant with God. Because he has promised prosperity. It belongs to me. But how many of you know, I, I'm not gonna... I'm not going to uh, go to the bank with those 12 stalks of corn, and 36 ears of corn. That's not going to really help me a whole lot in my, in my retirement planning. Isn't that right? But if, I, if I've got so many acres of corn, now that's money I can take to the bank. That's a substantial amount of increase. It's on, the same, it's on the same principle of God's grace and what God's provided, but it's determined to how, with how much I sowed. If you sow a little, you're going to leap a, reap a little. You sow a lot, you're going to reap a lot. And both of those is because we've been redeemed from the curse of poverty. We see that all through the scriptures. Go with me over to uh, uh, Malachi 3. Ooh, we're looking at the Old Testament now. It's all right, it won't hurt you. Amen. We'll, we'll interpret in light of the New Testament. We'll turn over to the Old Testament, chapter Malachi 3. Doug read it tonight. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. 
Now, if you just stop there, you could say, well, you know, the windows of heaven are opened and God's pouring his blessing out to me. But notice it comes as a result of you bringing the tithe into the storehouse. Isn't that right? Now notice verse 11. He said, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Now if you bring that over in the New Testament, the devourer, of course, is the devil. God's not rebuking the devourer today. He's already, he's not only been rebuked, he's been silenced. Jesus defeated the devil at the cross and in his resurrection, did he not? The devil has been completely uh, 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 destroyed in the sense, it says that, that, the, that, that, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil has been completely defeated for the Christian. So today, God's, it's not God that's rebuking the devourer. He's, he's already been put down. Jesus put him down. But then if he, if he attempts to raise his, his snaggle-toothed head and just start something, we, we say, no, you don't. No, you don't. Jesus put you down stated. You're not, you're not right raising your ugly head in my house. So if the devil does start, start something, we're not looking for God to, to rebuke him. We, we take care of it because the battle's been won. So that's the New Testament interpretation of that. Notice the devourer is rebuked so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. Notice you still have to have a vine. You still have to have something sown. And so that doesn't take away from the grace of God. That doesn't, some people have the idea, and I've heard this preached before recently. They say, anything you do, as, you're a, as a child of God, once you're saved, any action you take that by taking that action, God then responds to you and blesses you because of that action. Now you're not under grace, you're under law. That's just not true. I said, that's just not true. There are things we have to do and because we're under grace, not under law, we're not, we're not living under the curse of anything. We're living under the blessing and God said, this is what I've promised you. This is what has been made yours in the covenant you're in and now when I give, it will, it will produce good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running up. Well, I have enough sense that if, if I know the covenant has conferred upon me this supernatural blessing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna increase my giving. If I want a greater return, I know that all I gotta do is, is put more seed in the ground. That's not a lack of grace, that's just faith. That's acting on the word of God. Amen. So prosperity is progressive. Go with me over to Second uh, Corinthians nine again. We'll close with this. Second Corinthians nine, where we were, we were in the eighth chapter actually. We go to the ninth chapter and look at verse six. But this I say: He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Is this New Testament? Wait a minute. Let me look here. Yeah, that's in the New Testament. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. I guess Paul, you know, got out of, he got into the law for a minute. No, it's not law. He who sows bountifully, bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let, it, let each person give as he purposes in his heart, 
not grudgingly or out of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. I don't give because I feel compulsion to give. I don't give because I feel like if I don't give, God's going to get me. I give because God has redeemed me from poverty and he has set in motion a blessing that all I need to do is cooperate with it and if I'll cooperate with it, I'll receive more and more. I purpose in my heart to be a bountiful receiver. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart. A lot of people take that verse out of its setting and say, well, that means, see, you just give whatever you want to give. You come to church, I don't feel like giving much. Then just don't give. Or if you come to church and you think, well, I want to give, just give. It doesn't matter what you give. Well, that's taking that verse out of context. It starts with the word so or therefore. He who sows, the previous verse, sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will, will reap bountifully. So with that in mind, let each one give as he purposes in his heart. I purpose in my heart. When I give, I give with purpose. I give with purpose, I want to be a blessing, but I also give with the purpose of receiving. Now, the receiving isn't the first motivation. The first motivation is to be a blessing, but it's okay after your first motivation is right then to expect to receive. I purpose in my heart to be a bountiful sower and reaper, not a a stingy sower and reaper. Because I want to sow more and reap even more. I'm not interested so much in the six or in the 12 stalks of corn. I want acres and acres of corn. Amen. Now notice this, verse number 11. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that's the covenant. That's the blessing. That's that's the provision of Calvary. If you're a Christian, you have a right to income. I said, if you're a Christian, you have a right to income. But at the same time, income won't come to you if you're sitting watching TV. Unless for some reason you've been paid to watch TV. Most people aren't. See, if you take that, that, that crazy grace, grace message, say, well, you know, God, we, we're redeemed from poverty and, 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 and prosperity is our covenant right. It belongs to us in Christ. Well, then just stay home. If they if take that to its, to its logical conclusion, then you don't even have to work. They say, well, no, the, the, the New Testament says if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Aha, law. No, there are some provisions that have to be acted on. But if you work, if you're willing to work and, you're, and you work, you have the right to a good income. You have the right to claim a good job and to get promotions and advancements and raises and bonuses. That's part of the covenant. You have to believe for it. Amen. None of the covenant just because it all comes by faith. You have the right to believe for it because why? You're a child of God. You've been redeemed from being ripped off. You've been blessed with prosperity. And so you can expect to have seed come into your hand as well as bread for food. But if you take all of your seed and you eat not only the food, but if you eat the seed and don't sow it, then you're hindering your harvest. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food Notice, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are made rich in everything so that you can be generous. Notice, 
God will multiply the seed you have sown, not the seed you don't sow. As a, as a child of God, as a, as a, as a born-again Christian, redeemed from the curse of the law, that the blessing of Abraham has come upon you, you have the right to have a good job because the Bible teaches working. You have the right to have a good job, to believe for a good income. And God, out of that, will give you food. To, he'll give you seed and feed. Okay? God's seed and feed program. He'll give you feed to eat but seed to sow. And it's the and then he takes the seed that you sow and he multiplies it back to you. He can't multiply the seed you eat. If you take all of your income and just consume it upon yourself, well, I'm I'm my own missionary field. I'm investing, I'm God's children, child, and I'm getting investing in myself. No, that's selfishness. <laughs> Listen, there are people that actually have tried to float that argument. Yeah, since I'm a child of God, I'm just going to tithe to myself. Oh, that's unscriptural. What you're doing is you're consuming all the seed that God has given you to sow and you're treating it as feed, as food, and you're eating all of it. Well, you still have the right to be blessed and God's still going to bless you. I said he's still going to bless you. Because you're, because you're a child of God, he bore your poverty that you might be prosperous so God's blessing is upon you but you're not gonna be blessed in the same measure that somebody else is gonna be blessed. That's, you're not sowing. You have two people and let's say everything about them is, is the same. You couldn't have this. Of course, no two people are the same. But just hypothetically, you've got two people. They're identical Christians, identical people. They make the same amount of money. They go to the same church They uh, both have the same degree of faith. They both believe that that they're redeemed from the curse of the law, that the blessing of Abraham could come upon them. But one of them sows and one of them doesn't. They're identical in every way. The blessing of God is identically theirs, but the person who sows is going to have a lot more. That's just all there is to it. It's just going to have a lot more than the person who doesn't sow. That's a spiritual law. To he who sows sparingly, he will reap sparingly. But he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. The person that sows sparingly is still going to reap good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. But, and so does the person that sows bountifully. But see, when I sow, I want to, you can sow a thimble full and reap thimblefuls. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, thimblefuls of blessing. Or you can sow in big old, you know, 55-gallon drums, and it's going to come back to you, same principle, because you're, you're, un, you're, you're not under the curse. You've been redeemed from the curse. It's going to come back to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. You're going to have a whole lot more than the guy that's getting a return on thimbles. Same faith, same covenant, same uh, uh, covenant right, same redemption, same Savior, same everything. But one person has acted more on the word than the other. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching.
If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.